News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Christina Greer. In a bit, we're going to hear from Katie's colleague, Yoav Gonin of The City, and Chris Sommerfeld of The Daily News about the weird, almost dead souls-ish fight for control of the Brooklyn Democratic Party, where the machine controlled by county chair and Eric Adams' ally, Rodnice Bichette Hermelin, is trying to fight off an insurgent wave, including by nominating people for district positions who literally had no idea their names were even on the ballot. After that, our very own Alex Brooklyn in Paris uh, joins to talk about the moms in New York City struggling to get formula in the face of a nationwide shortage and her overseas shipments to help them. And then finally, Carolyn Lewis at WNYC in Gotham comes by to break down what's happening with legal weed in New York and to the people who had been and are continuing to sell it illegally now. But first, here's a rundown of just some of what happened over another truly wild week in the city that never sleeps. Rikers, the city finally has an action plan for getting guards to actually, you know, show up at their post instead of using their unlimited sick leave. And it appears that that's enough to get a federal judge to hold off, at least for now, on installing a receiver to take control of the city's jails. Even as that judge warns the conditions inside, while they're starting to show some signs of improvement under the watch of Adams and his team, continue to be, quote, severe and potentially life-threatening. That news happened to come the same day that a state judge held the city in contempt for failing to provide medical services to inmates, and the day before the fifth death of a prisoner so far this year, which means we're on pace to exceed last year's staggeringly high number of 16, and that's staggeringly high, let alone in a system with an incredible one-to-one ratio of guards to prisoners at this point where nonetheless incarcerated people have repeatedly been left to watch out for themselves. In the meantime, New York City is now on high COVID alert as the case count and number of hospital patients testing positive, including people who were hospitalized for other reasons, has somewhat ominously continued to rise. While the mayor's color-coded system recommends mandating masks inside at the orange level we've just hit, Adams says he won't do so now, but will continue consulting with his medical professionals who are advising but not requiring New Yorkers to wear medical-grade masks inside. And Adams finally made it to Albany in a last-minute effort to get traffic cameras extended and to renew crucial affordable housing subsidy for developers and mayoral control of the schools, all programs the state controls and temporarily lets the city run so that mayors are forced to go up every few years and plead for more. A process that Adams, a former state senator, has had perhaps surprisingly tough time navigating, according to many of the lawmakers up there. But wait, there's more. Adams also ended up in Buffalo at a vigil following the horrific mass murders committed there by an 18-year-old white supremacist, traveled about 300 miles to target a grocery store in a black neighborhood there. Adams compared, quote, this terrorist act that took 10 innocent people merely because of their ethnicity, merely because of who they were, end quote, with the fatal shooting in the Bronx of an 11-year-old girl saying that the shooter, still at large, whose apparently stray shot killed Kayarete, was, quote, no less demonic than the white supremacists who set out to slaughter black people. And finally, we've got Matt Madness with brand new, very different congressional districts drawn up by a judge-appointed special master 
After that, Judge rejected the ones Democratic lawmakers had gerrymandered, reshuffling the political deck. These new maps are poised to pit many sitting lawmakers against each other and shuffle the deck dramatically. So we've got the return of Bill de Blasio eyeing a run of his own for a new congressional seat, a battle between Upper East and Upper West Side heavyweights, Jerry Nadler and Carolyn Maloney, and DCCC chair Sean Patrick Maloney, no relation, announcing that he's going to run in a new district where most voters are currently represented by Mondaire Jones, potentially forcing Jones to move districts and face off against Jamal Bowman. Hakeem Jeffries, who's now in the same district as Yvette Clark, flatly called the new maps racist. Alex, what was in that tweet? He said this tactic would make Jim Crow blush. Chrissy, is this intense game of musical chairs and a moment when Republicans have succeeded in other states in making maps that will benefit themselves and with control of the House at stake a good thing for democracy in New York? Is it a good thing for democracy nationally? And what do you make of Maloney potentially forcing two progressive black lawmakers to square off for one seat as he tries to secure himself a relatively safe one? Yeah, well, I'll start with the latter. I don't even want to give any oxygen to that man. Um, I just find him highly problematic on so many levels, uh, and he just makes my blood boil. But I will probably circle back to him. I think what's concerning is this. November 2022, when there is a possibility that Democrats could lose the House, this is why New York is in play. Because as I've said time and time again, no states are blue or red. All states are red states. It's just how can you draw the lines and gerrymander people in or out of districts where you either get blue states or red states. And in New York, we know that we're incredibly red in a lot of areas and deep, deep purple. And so to sort of do this process of packing and cracking uh, in a gerrymandering term is concerning because it does have national effects. And so those effects will obviously come down to how people vote on uh, civil rights and civil liberties legislation, voting rights legislation, immigration legislation, climate change legislation, student debt alleviation. So all these larger national issues actually will find their home in New York somehow if we, we keep these maps. And from what has been explained to me, it seems as though these maps are pretty much good to go, right? I mean, there might be some minor changes, but I don't think that any major changes will occur in these maps. So we can pretty much assume that the histrionics that we've seen are are warranted. The candidates are certainly assuming that, you know, people are already declaring for races, like Bill de Blasio is putting out calls to allies saying I mean, he's going to jump come in. Come on. But here's, the, so here's the thing. You said a word that sort of, you know, jostled me. There's the candidate side of it, where we have Bill de Blasio, who's, you know, dusting off his his campaign posters. We've got Scott Stringer. We've got men who literally don't know what else to do but run for office or be in office. And we're going to see a lot of musical chairs. I mean, Jerry Nadler's, what, 73? Carolyn Maloney's 76. So some people argue, like, hey, maybe it is good that people start fighting over their seats, right? Maybe some young people and young blood can come in. I do think that Hakeem Jeffries conversation about this kind of Jim Crowing of districts is real because it's happening in Florida. That's Republican control. But if it's happening in New York, we know it's happening in other states all across the country. I mean, this is this is old school. And like you would appreciate this, Harry, since we're the same age. But it's like they used to do this with black TV shows all the time. 
They put black TV shows on at the same exact time. And then it's like, oh, nobody's watching. It's like, well, we have to split 50-50. So then it's like, okay, both of them get canceled and a white show comes on. So like this to me is just the political equivalent of what happened all throughout the 1980s when you had really good black uh, TV shows and 90s. So that's concerning. That's the candidate side. The voter side is what also really concerns me because in New York, you know, we always say, oh, there's like voter apathy. It's like, no, it's voter fatigue and voter confusion because already we've got folks that are that have voted this year, right? I already voted this year because I had a special election for my um, for uh, my state legislator. And then we're going to turn out to vote in June. But because we couldn't get these maps together, we're going to go back and we're going to vote now in August, I'm told. Right. Just as also because Kathy Hochul wanted to have a primary as quickly as possible right. and thus wanted to have split elections before uh, Tom Swazi or Jamani Williams could get any momentum. So she's like, we'll move the other ones back. Uh, and, and we're going to keep September, I think, and we're going to keep mine. Yeah. And yeah. you've explained, you know, and like it's a few million dollars. Now, granted, a few million dollars for a democracy isn't that huge of a deal. But that means we have an election day, June 28th. And voters are going to go and they're going to vote for governor and lieutenant governor, right? But then we also have an election August 23rd. So not only are we having the election in June when parents are scrambling with like kids getting out of school and going to camp, we now have an election in August where parents are scrambling and getting kids ready for school. So like this is, and it's not just about parents, it's about other folks. But a lot of folks are also confused because if I've been beating the drum in my writing and on the podcast saying, be prepared for June, be prepared for June. But I haven't mentioned anything about August because there was no August up until a week and a half ago. Now, over the summer, I'm going to say, you all need to vote in August. And a lot of folks are gonna say, well, we already voted. And then I turn around and I'm gonna say, and then also vote in November. And because we don't have real civics education in this country, most people don't understand the different levels of offices they're voting for. Vast majority of people don't understand why it is they have to turn out so many times. They don't understand the difference between a primary and a general. And so this is how we get, especially in New York, these embarrassing levels of voter participation or lack thereof. And that is a perfect segue to this interview where we talk about the arguably undemocratic small d Democratic Party in Brooklyn and uh, the concerns about candidates there who uh, don't even know they're on the ballots, in at least one case because they are no longer alive. Let's jump right in. Chris and Yoav, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, just a couple of recent headlines from, from your respective reporting. We've got uh, Brownsville Democratic official admits board of election forgeries came from inside his camp. Uh, we have Brooklyn residents claim forgeries that actually put them on ballots. Uh, a Red Hook houseboat, a strange tale of Brooklyn Democrats in a district that shouldn't exist. And Brooklyn DA looking into appointments of dead, unwitting people, the borough's Democratic Party. So, Yo, maybe you can start and just sort of take us through what the Brooklyn Democratic Party is, what's at stake in these elections, and what the hell is happening with these uh, unaware and, in some cases, unalive people whose names have ended up on these ballots. 
Sure. Um, again, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, the, the, the Brooklyn Democratic Party is, is a county representative, uh, uh, one of the, I believe it's the largest um, Democratic Party uh, representing a county in the state of New York. Um, and the elections that we're talking about in, I believe, all of these cases um, are for positions within the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Some of them are kind of mid-level positions uh, known as district leaders, and some of them are low-level positions, uh, about 4,000 of them known as county committee members. And the party has a huge influence over the nominations of local and state elected officials, um, as well as uh, the nomination and essentially appointment of judges, and uh, and also a role making some appointments to uh, board of election inspectors and and things like that. So it it actually has a huge influence over those bodies. And there's been a struggle for control um, between an establishment that that tends to be more moderate and a uh, insurgent group that tends to be more progressive. And um, we've basically identified through some of these stories. I, I don't know if, if uh, it, it's basically looks like coordinated schemes, um, although uh, some of them originate from the mid-level positions, but schemes that essentially uh, help the people in power to, to stay in power and, and, and also to accumulate votes for their side. When, when, uh, when the party meets, they often votes on, vote on things like party rules and, um, like I said, nominations for elected officials and judges. And uh, for example, um, the the situation where uh, people found themselves on the ballot without their knowledge, uh, we 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 got a tip that this was happening in Southern Brooklyn, um, and we basically in one particular district we went through a list of more than a hundred names, um, and of the people we were able to reach, twenty of them said, "No, I'm I'm not running for anything. I have no idea how my name got on the ballot," um, and. Um, why would it benefit the the people in control of the party to have elected members to the party who don't even know it? Um, it's because the way the voting system works, if you don't show up for a vote, your vote can be transferred to the people in power. So um, essentially, this is a way of kind of padding the padding the house account, uh, so to speak. Now, quick question: Is this? a Brooklyn problem or is it a five borough problem? Why does it seem as though all the drama is happening in Brooklyn? I mean, are we are we seeing this in the Bronx or Manhattan or any other boroughs? I think the, the reason a lot of this is coming out in, in Brooklyn is because there's a more organized opposition um, group there um, led by probably the New Kings Democrats who have been around for more than a decade. Um, and there's a also uh, a group called Rep Your Block that that's um, trying to get more um, independent. They tend to be progressive people elected to to positions in the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Um, but I think there's because there is somewhat of a formidable opposition that these stories are coming out in Brooklyn. I, I don't for a second doubt that it isn't happening in the other boroughs. Yeah, to piggyback off of that, I know there have been reports in previous years from other county parties. I believe it has occurred in the Bronx as well over the years where um, dead people have ended up being appointed to county committee 
uh, it has not cost us perhaps as much of a stir as it is right now in Brooklyn. And to Yoab's point, I think that's because there is such a um, growing effort to kind of change the power dynamic within the Brooklyn Democratic Party. Yes, can you can you help paint that picture for readers, listeners <laughs> who haven't both who uh, who haven't been following this so closely? Like, who controls the Brooklyn Democratic Party now? How do they relate to the uh, Adams administration? And what it is for the people who do know they're running that motivates them to do so for these largely unpaid mid-level positions and lower-level positions. And so for starters, who's in leadership at the Brooklyn Democratic Party right now? It's by and large controlled by the chairwoman, uh, Rodney's Bichotte, um, as well as a slate of district leaders uh, that are allied with her, if you will. Um, they have connections to Mayor Adams' administration in various ways. Um, Mayor Adams' chief of staff uh, for instance, used to be the top lawyer for the party. Uh, Mayor Adams himself has obviously been associated with the Brooklyn Democratic Party for a long time in that he used to be uh, the borough president of Brooklyn. The insurgents, if you will, within the party who are looking to change this power dynamic, um, as Joab mentioned, they are uh, first and foremost associated with a group called the New Kings Dems. I would say that they are motivated to change the power dynamic and to try to uh, change leadership leadership structure because of a perceived um, view that the party has not been transparent enough. It has not been responsive enough to uh, their actual constituents, as well as a long history of uh, you know, alleged corruption that has occurred in the party. Um, and you know, to to that end, what we've now seen were unwitting people, and in at least one case, a dead woman has been appointed to the county committee. Uh, these insurgents are seeing that as a continuation of that um, that tradition that they they want to shake up. You just fill listeners in on uh, this dead woman, Alfreda Davis, and how she ended up there, and uh, maybe also, if you'd like, about this. Uh, this fascinating uh, houseboat in Red Oak. So um, on, on Miss Alfreda Davis, um, she was appointed to the committee and I'm gonna attempt to get my dates right, right here. She was appointed formally to the committee in December of 2020, um, even though she had passed away in November, 2020. How, how this occurred was that the district leader in the 46th district, uh, which is Coney Island, Bay Ridge, um, included her on a backfill form to uh, fill vacancies on this county committee. Miss um, Alfreda Davis had given her consent that previous summer to be appointed but given that she had passed away in November, you would think that the district leader would maybe have taken her off, um, off of that backfill form. She did not, and she proceeded to anyways uh, have her appointed to the committee. As Yoav hinted to earlier, what ended up happening as a result was that she became a proxy vote 
on this county committee uh, where she, her vote was actually used to pass some rule changes uh, and I believe also advance some candidates for a committee. Um, this, uh, sorry about that, this, this was possible, uh, this, this ended up being possible due to this proxy system where even though she was dead, uh, this could occur. Um, in terms of the houseboat that you referred to, it's not a story that I have been very involved in reporting. It was people on our editorial board who uncovered this. But what essentially happened, as far as I understand, um, is that a district ended up only covering this small area in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and the only part that was encompassing in that district, the only residents, were a handful of people on a houseboat. Um, you might have seen this houseboat. It's right by um, right by the waterfront down there in Red Hook. And uh, these people on the houseboats are, are the representatives as well of that very, very tiny district, which I believe encompasses four or five people. Um, and this is this is another layer to what the insurgents in the party are portraying as the effort by party leadership to stay in power through uh, various dubious means. So, Chris, why would someone allow dead people to essentially be on the ballot and possibly be representative because they just need essentially those dead people's names as proxies for when they want to do certain certain things. I just don't understand why we would even promote a dead person moving forward in this process. And so that that's where it's that's where it gets a bit complicated and I'm not going to lie, but it is what Yoav hinted towards earlier where if you fill county committee seats with unwitting people, you can pad your um, support on the county committee, which consists of some 4,000 members. So if you have, you know, 500 proxy votes in your pocket, you can use that to, for instance, change internal party rules, advance candidates for judicial positions, uh, advance candidates in special elections, by using those proxy votes that essentially just become extensions of, in this instance, a district leader. Um, so you can, your vote, in this instance, one district leader's vote is not just one vote. It might become several dozen votes because that district leader has proxies. One of those proxies here was a dead woman. Um, and that sort of explains the, I guess, the uh, the potential motivation for why you would want to have that. And and I would add that in that particular year, because of COVID, uh, and they were, they were holding their meeting virtually, mm. um, normally you have to sign over your proxy. Um, you have to fill out a form, sign it, and mail it back. Um, and, and you kind of designate who you want to be your proxy. That particular year, they kind of had an opt-out um, system. They, they didn't want to have people, um, um, basically because it was virtual. Um, if, if you didn't show up for the meeting, but you didn't say anything either way about your proxy, it all automatically went to, uh, 
I want to say the district leader. Well, it, it went to some official, but because the establishment had control of the uh, vast majority of district leaders, they got the vast majority of the proxies. And and even with that padding, um, which certainly included uh, dozens of people who didn't know they had been appointed, um, even with that, they technically lost uh, a vote that night um, by, by uh, a, you know, maybe a dozen votes or something like that. Even with padding the vote, they lost to the progressives. They ended up uh, nullifying that vote through a kind of parliamentarian rule uh, in, a, in a follow-up to that meeting. But um, it, it shows that they were, they knew that the vote was going to be close and, and there was a reason for them to kind of try to harness as many votes from unwitting people as possible. So, as I understand it, as you guys were saying, these volunteer positions, right, are sort of the, the, the door, the patronage door to significant paid positions to which candidates end up on ballots to these judgeships. There's some real power there. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, Rodney's uh, Bichette Ermland's husband, speaking of money, had a $190,000 job in the Adams administration that would have stopped him, if I understand this correctly, from, from having a role in the uh, party apparatus, like a volunteer role, and then left that job uh, to maintain that. I also saw that Hermelin just did this interview with uh, Errol Lewis in New York Magazine, where she says that uh, the people who are fighting her agenda, um, they're just dealing with minuscule stuff because they want power. She says she's an immigrant black woman. A lot of the uh, 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 the New Kings Democrats, I think, are, are like young white progressives in many cases uh, and is arguing that, that, that this, this is that sort of a proxy war to take power from people who have done organizing in Brooklyn, whereas the insurgents, I think, are arguing that this is undemocratic and the rules keep changing to keep them out of power and that this structure is thus not responsive to voters. Um, that's a mouthful, but I'm hoping, uh, yo, maybe you can start here. You can sort of break down how this fight is actually working out, and, and you know, the big Kibono question: who profits uh, as 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 it as it goes on, and depending on who has control of this machine. Sure, um, I and and I, I have heard that the, the count and leadership. Um, yeah, the, the, the insurgents obviously are, are uh, going to kind of maintain that they're, they're not just power hungry, uh, you know, a, a, a different group of, of power hungry people. Um, they, they want to reform things. And, um, you know, I think what they're correct about is that the current structure gives a lot of power and decision making to the to the people in control. Um, and that includes uh that the nomination of judges in a way that that it almost uh, you could almost call it an, an appointment. Um, I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a sure thing. Um, the, these nominees for Supreme Court, uh, based on the fact that there are so many Democrats in in Brooklyn. Um, but one of the things that that the insurgents are, are repeatedly trying to change are the party rules. So that um, because the, the way they're set up right now just makes it impossible um, to to change anything. And, and they also say that that they want the party to focus on different things. Um, they they 
criticize it as a historically corrupt organization that's basically about making judges and making money and patronage appointments, um, that that is, you know, kind of the driving force behind the party. Um, obviously, the people holding the power right now um, strongly disagree with that. And, and they they actually say they're open to reform. And, and um, I think Bashat even uh, referred to herself as a, a progressive um, in that interview. Um, but um, yeah, the the techniques that that we're seeing, I, I, I guess it, it was interesting to see Bashat kind of criticize these minuscule things because a lot of these moves about you know, uh, we, we found that they were challenging people at the county committee level. Again, these are those low level positions. There's four thousand open positions. And in one district in Brownsville, um, we identified five forged signatures of, of people that were ostensibly trying to kick these, these people off the ballot for these, you know, unpaid, I don't want to say inconsequential, but fairly powerless positions. Um, that stuff is, is coming from the county side. Um, they're the ones that are, that are using all these very kind of um, out of out of sight techniques uh, to try to limit the vote of the opposition, um, and and so clearly they're they're worried about something. But um, ultimately, um, you know, the uh, I, I think there is, as, as I said at the beginning, a lot of power in 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 the Brooklyn Democratic Party as far as nominations for elected office, they get, they, they get to nominate allies um, who, who help them keep control of the power and set the agenda. Um, and also judges um, uh, who, and the people who work in the courts and also the people who work, some of the people who work at the board of elections. It's, it's a very uh, influential and, and, and powerful organization over all those entities. And one aspect, um, one aspect that I just wanted to follow up on with what Joab just mentioned um, that shouldn't be lost in this conversation is whether or not any laws are being broken as part of this appointment, of these appointments. I want to preface that with saying there is no indication that any prosecutorial agencies have formally launched an investigation. But the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office uh, told me last week that they are actively reviewing um, the things that uh, the Daily News and the news organization, the city, have uncovered over the past few weeks. The appointments of unwitting people, the appointments of dead people, the forging of signatures on ballots. Again, as far as we know, there's no active criminal investigation, but the Brooklyn DA is reviewing and what comes of that, we'll have to wait and see. Gentlemen, thank you both for uh, taking the time here. And now that uh, weed is legal, although uh, selling it is not exactly at this point, as we'll discuss later in the episode, deep breath closer here. Democrats in Albany just drew up maps that would have protected the power of most incumbents, like the people who are already in power, and rendered a lot of elections practically moot. You know, the New York Times had a headline that, that, that was uh, very close to, you know, when a judge ruled that those maps had that the Democrats had drawn up had to go like Democrats lose three seats. This is before the elections are held. Um, 
are there parallels between that and what uh, the local parties are doing in terms of creating nominally democratic structures in which most voters don't, in fact, have some say in what's happening and thus how, how power and uh, money and other goods are distributed? Question mark. <laughs> Um, I would say that there's there's been a, a long history of um, criticism of certainly of the way that that the judges um, are elected and appointed, um, not not just in in Brooklyn but but everywhere um, in, in in all five boroughs. Um, I I think um, I, I I think it it. it it does, especially the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court judges um, are, are basically nominated at a convention um, by a bunch of judicial delegates who the voters uh, ostensibly have have voted in to, to perform this role, but nobody knows who they are. Um, and the 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 rules are yeah, they're they're stacked. Um, I, I don't want to compared to casino per se, but they're, they're stacked to favor that, the, the house. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, when, when you see those names on the ballots, a lot of people don't know how they got there, but, um, if you get on the democratic line, um, you are pretty much assured of victory and the process for getting on that democratic line could certainly be a lot more democratic than it's been. In terms of the new districts that are being drawn um, up in Albany, in one way, there's no parallels between that and what's happening in Brooklyn, if you will. If you look at, for instance, uh, some of the incumbents uh, in Congress right now who might be having to fight it out against each other, what comes to mind is Carolyn Maloney and Jerry Nadler. Uh, who might have to uh, fight against each other in the primary, uh, even though they've both been in Congress for decades uh, in very safe seats um, due to these new lines that are there. So in that sense, these new maps are um, a sharp contrast to what we're seeing in, uh, in Brooklyn, where the power structures have been more rigid. That's a perfect closing note. Of course, the, the, those new maps were drawn by a special master after maps that would have allowed uh, Nadler and Maloney, for instance, to maintain their uh, separate, much safer seats uh, were struck down. Uh, guys, th thank you both again. And I hope we, we can have you back on as this proceeds and we see what happens uh, now that former FAQ guest and also Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez has said that he's, he's looking at uh, the reporting that your outlets have done. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry if we were a little uh, all over the place. It's a lot to absorb. Yeah, and I apologize for my dog freaking out in the middle of that. That was very unfortunate. I hope it's usually didn't... my dog. It's a New York podcast. How yeah. can be a New York podcast yeah. if we don't have background noise? I know. It's just it was very bad timing, right? As Next I was time we need the... sirens. We like babies, <laughs> sirens. It's the whole thing. Right. <laughs> Thank um, you all so much. Yeah. I'm still confused. Back. I mean, I think you all did a great job explaining, but it's I'm really still confused. so confused. It's, it's so confusing. As to like, I, so I think it's important that, that we're yeah. starting this conversation because something tells me we're going to need you all to come back on and like help us circle the square. And I do think that a lot of New Yorkers think like, 
Democrats are good and like national Republicans are like the bad corrupt ones. But the dirty little secret is like all folks are kind of trying to stack the deck so that they sure. can, you know. People in power want to want to stay in power. Yeah, inevitably. <laughs> there we are. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Hello, Alex. And how is Gay Paris? Paris is good. Uh, we don't have a formula shortage which we do have in New York right now. Um, and this is sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole that I think a lot of people would find interesting that not everybody is involved in because not everybody is a uh, breastfeeding or formula feeding mom. Um, so I just sent a package for a lot of money to a friend of mine. You know, FedEx charged a lot of money to go internationally, to go internationally quickly. Uh, it was a box of four giant cans of formula from France because in Brooklyn, she could not find any. And her, I think like a cousin and sister, I think they were splitting the costs because they all have infants. Who's she? A friend of mine. Who would prefer, I take it not to right. be named, but maybe <laughs> yeah. active on some of these underground Facebook groups that are, are, are where, 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 where people are banding together to mutual aid to find each other formula. Absolutely. And like the, the Facebook groups, the list, there's like listservs um, where you get emailed. Um, there's Google groups and they generally function for uh, people to trade breast milk. Sometimes you have an oversupply when you have a baby and you freeze a lot of those. And uh, sometimes you donate it to a bank and sometimes you, uh, a milk bank, and sometimes you just send it out to other women who maybe have an undersupply and don't want to use formula or for whatever reason can't use formula. Um, and this is this quasi legal thing since it doesn't cost any money that a lot of people, especially in New York are trading milk. So if you have an infant and you, like milk is not coming, you're not producing enough to feed your kid. You can go on one of these groups, get involved in 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 some of these communities, and you can get um, you can get donor milk for free. Uh, and some people I know have been feeding their infant that way until six, seven, eight months old. So at the moment, a lot of these groups are in overdrive because of the formula shortage. You have women posting about their diet, whether they're vaccinated or not, um, offering to actually like wet nurse, offering to actually come to a place and feed a baby or just drop off milk. And, um, you know, between that and just showing up at the ER with your infant because you can't get enough formula or the right formula because some infants are on formula because they have specific health need. Um, you know, you, you might go with this, with this, uh, with this tactic, with, you know, go joining these groups and trying to get free milk. So there's a couple caveats with this. I want to say, um, the shared milk is obviously unregulated by the FDA. It's not pasteurized and anyone seeking this resource sh should understand the risk of doing so. Also, anyone looking to be a donor that doesn't want to go directly to a bank, which usually is only for premature babies in hospitals, um, <clears throat> should also realize that there are some scams where people will claim that they are a mother in need and then collect the milk and then try to sell it. That's one hustle that I've, I've seen. On a couple of these, um, WABC recently reported that women who are are donating their breast milk 
more to like NY Milk Bank. And this is a good way to go if you don't want to get involved in like a quasi-legal underground breast milk market situation, even though it's not a market because it's free. For anyone looking for that, that's uh, nymilkbank.org, O-R-G. It's the New York Milk Bank safe pasteurized uh, breast milk, uh, which I'm guessing that they have more demand uh, than usual with this formula shortage. So far, I have not heard, um, nor do I think that hospitals themselves are running out of the enough formula um, currently, but they're definitely running low since the plant in Michigan that was looking for a contaminant um, was providing like the, uh, for the companies that are primarily uh, provided in hospitals like Similac and especially Similac for preemies. Oh boy. Um, Oh baby. You could even say that that is wild. Uh, Staying with uh, the quasi legal. uh, Let's shift gears for just a moment and talk about legal weed in New York and all the people continuing to illegally resell it. Let's jump right in. It's FAQ NYC. Uh, We are here with Caroline Lewis of WNYC and Gothamist, who's been doing, I think, the, uh, the best reporting on this very slow, pretty weird rollout of legal weed. Uh, It's now legal to possess in New York. There are no legal dispensaries, which you might not realize if you see dispensaries around you and like stickers with codes to like order right now all around your neighborhood, like I do. Um, But possession is now legal. There are stores open in New Jersey as of 421 of last month. Uh, We're going to get there by, by the end of the year. And we have this fascinating gray market where Stuff's already for sale. There doesn't seem to be so much enforcement. I know there has been some cease and desist letters, although we don't know who they've gone out to. And Caroline, I was hoping you could just give our listeners like a big picture sense of where New York's rollout is and what the remaining open questions are. And then a you know news you can use sense for interested listeners uh, about what all this means for them right now and going forward in terms of uh, uh, you know purchasing and consuming marijuana products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm excited to be on the show. Um, so basically, New York State is still figuring out the regulations around what licensing will look like for different different types of businesses. Um, they've started to license some of the cultivators because they really need to get that going to have a supply of weed. Um, because marijuana is federally illegal, that means that all the product that you consume in the legal market in New York has to be grown and processed within the state, which is also a very weird situation um, to be in. Uh, but they have to scale that up. Um, and so what they're working on now is regulations around the first dispensary licenses. And those are going to go to people who either have past marijuana convictions themselves or have family members with past convictions. Um, And there are also some other requirements, like they have to have had a successful business um, and things like that. And so they're going to get the first 100 or 200 licenses for the stores that will open by the end of the year before the retail licenses open up to uh, other applicants. Um, But of course, in the meantime, 
there are plenty of places to buy marijuana, um, as there always have been in New York. We have probably the biggest cannabis market in the world and uh, just an extremely vast underground market. And now, like you said, a lot of stores that are opening up and like new ways to buy cannabis since legalization. So, so Caroline, thank, thanks again for being here. But how much are these licenses? I mean, I know that, you know, unlike Massachusetts and unlike New Jersey, New York said part of their delay was because they wanted to have some sort of restitution reparations for people who have been disproportionately affected by marijuana. Um, but is it realistic for those individuals and their families to be able to even afford a license? Um, I think that there, it, it depends, first of all, like, I think it depends what part of the state you're trying to open in, like, and it depends whether you're eligible for certain kinds of support. Also, um, I think with these first licenses that are going out, the state is working to actually have certain retail spaces available to people. And if they're willing to go into the spaces that the state sets aside, they might take care of some of the costs of like, uh, leasing it and like upgrading the space to make it uh, suitable for a dispensary and things like that, which is like a huge part of the cost, especially in New York City, where real estate is so expensive. Um, but, you know, I think uh, for for others who aren't part of that program, you know, they're going to have to find funding. Um, they're going to have to find investors. It's like starting any business, except with the added difficulty that um, because it's federally illegal, again, you know, banking is harder. Um, you're not getting the same business tax breaks you know, at the at least at the federal level. Um, and so there are definitely some specific challenges uh, when it comes to starting a cannabis business. Um, and, you know, it could be upwards of a couple hundred thousand dollars, uh, I think, depending on what you're looking to start. Yeah, because for me, that seems like it could be a setup for a lot of folks in the sense that, you know, if you already have a criminal record, we know it's going to be more difficult for you to get financing, even with certain governmental programs. And knowing that we have this tension between the federal government and state level governments, um, I, I, I know we're in the wait and see phase, but it, it sort of makes me a little bit nervous because we also know that starting a, a business that you know is widely accepted and we know that there's still a lot of stigma around marijuana, marijuana products, seems like it could be difficult for, for those to get this up and running and then also have a successful business because there will pretty soon be not a glut on the market, but we'll have quite a few individuals uh, who, are, who are in this space. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the main concerns that advocates and people writing the law were thinking about um, and people on, you know, the like people, you know, the regulators at the state level are thinking about because we've seen equity programs have really mixed results in other states. You know, there are places where they say, OK, you need to secure you know, real estate, and then we're going to take forever to process your application. Um, you know, people lose money, people, uh, you know, it, it really uh, has made people suffer in other cases. And so I think New York has learned a lot from that. Um, you know, the the state uh, set aside, the state budget set aside $200 million uh, as sort of start seed funding for social equity applicants. But then, you know, there are other private organizations looking to start like incubators and stuff like that. Um, and so I think people should try to get some of that support, like try to find, you know, who's providing the uh, pro bono legal advice or connecting people to legal advice, who's got the incubators that are really trying to work with the legacy market, um, meaning people who have been selling weed illegally, um, like get that support because like part of 
the challenge of being in the cannabis industry is just that there's so many regulations and you like really need a good lawyer. Um, yeah. You really need people. So who you are, don't end up back in, in prison. Well, I mean, not just ending up back in prison. I think that's less of a concern, honestly. Like I know that, you know, obviously we don't want anyone to go to jail, but I don't think that's like the prerogative of the legislative of the regulators right now. Like, I think it's more just making sure that people don't take financial risks that, um, you know, are too big. And so I think like, having people who can help you with compliance. Like that's what the advantage is for these large uh, multi-state cannabis companies. Like they can have the fancy lawyers. They, I mean, a lot of them are public and they already have investors. Um, and so it's just like having the money to and time to invest in that uh, type of expertise so that you don't, you know, waste money leasing a space that's not going to be up to regulation or whatever it is, you know? Right. I think that's one of my concerns. It's like you would put in your savings and put in so much money. And then because of time, you end up essentially losing your investment. And then you essentially are starting either from zero or less than zero. Now, I want to shift gears just ever so slightly. You know, the neighborhood weed man's been holding it down for a long, long time. And so where does that individual fit in this narrative because i remember when i lived in massachusetts when they first opened dispensaries about 10 years ago there was a big divide uh with people who you know partake in in cannabis products where some people were saying i'm loyal to my local weed man i'm not going to this fancy place i just want to you know stick with him he's always been you know relatively reliable um and then others were saying well no i want to go to a proper dispensary because i'm not worried about you know fentanyl being in my products or there's some sort of quality control. Um, and so there, there was a big division there. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happens to the local weed man? And, and are you seeing these divides in New York state? Yeah. I mean, I think already people are seeing cannabis being sold out of like trucks and stores. And some people are getting curious and wandering in and checking it out, even if they do sort of trust their, you know, their weed delivery guy more at this point. So I think some people, like, I think some people might say that they're like loyal to their local weed guy, but if you've got weed on the store, why text the delivery guy, you know? Um, And I think there will be a lot of weed stores in New York. Um, That said, I think that it is a priority for state regulators, or at least it should be a priority to ensure that a sizable chunk of the legacy market gets licensed because otherwise they're going to have a situation like what we have in California where you know, they've had medical marijuana license um, legal in some form since like the 90s, and they've had adult use cannabis legal since 2016. And I've seen estimates that say that something like 80% of the marijuana products sold there are still from the unregulated market. Um, that's insane. That's not giving anyone the tax revenue that they want uh, in New York. And it's certainly not achieving the goal of creating like a safe, regulated industry, which is not to say that necessarily the products you get from your dealer are unsafe, but like, sure, you know, it's nice to know, especially with things like edibles, that there's some regulations um, or some consistency or some standards. Um, And so I think that is going to be a priority, but also a challenge for regulators is to like incentivize dealers to get licensed and to like jump through all the hoops to do that. So, so I have to recommend to listeners that they go to Gothamist and read Carolyn's piece, How Cannabis Edibles Get Made and Tested for THC Levels in New York, which is really, really interesting. And also touches on, as you mentioned, the, the, these issues where because this remains a Schedule One drug federally, all of that has to happen 
in New York, which, which adds like an additional layer of trickiness or confusion with, with actually having like any sort of apples to apples labeling. Um, so I did want to ask, and, and this goes back to the uh, neighborhood weed man and weed woman uh, right. in, in some ways. So I know like Thank the first, you. I think hundred and 150 licenses are, are going to, to these people you've mentioned who, who have been selling, uh, selling weed or have family members, you know, who have had convictions for doing so. Um, the, the more I look at the regulatory structure we have prior to a legal market, right? They're like cannabis conversation PSAs on, on TV, which are extremely corny. I know the state office of cannabis management has sent out some cease and desist letters to unauthorized sellers, although they won't say which ones from your reporting. Um, this seems like, like a real Rube Goldberg sort of rigmarole where you're taking what had been an unregulated and sort of functional economy that unlike with, with, with other drugs was not nearly as often associated with violence, although it has been. Um, and, and, and saying, if you want to jump through a whole number of hoops, maybe you can get in on this business. It's quite possible, by the way, these early licenses, I know this isn't what state lawmakers want, get drowned out. It's like more and more people get into the business, you know, with, uh, with, 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 with bigger backing. Um, and there were not mom and pop or, you know, guys on the corner sort of operations. Um, there is supposed to be all these regulations. At some point we have these dispensaries open and presumably there's then some enforcement of totally unregulated, you know, guys with the truck or storefronts or delivery services or whatever. Whereas right now, nominally that's still illegal, but everyone seems to be looking right past it. You know, you have people just very openly selling in storefronts at parks, like really openly, like with stands in parks. And, 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 and so on. So I, I am concerned that this ends up as sort of a, a ridiculous government function that has almost no effect on an ongoing black market that does or doesn't get regulated. And it's just confusing as hell for, for people in terms of where they're buying, what they're buying, how this works. The tax revenue is less than expected. And in trying to fix all the program, all the problems that other states have had. Like, for instance, you know, not not watching out for people who are caught up in this insane, very lengthy drug war where marijuana arrests were like the number one excuse police used for many years in New York to like stop, frisk, uh, and often arrest and prosecute young black men and men of color in particular, and boys. Um, the, the, the looking ahead, I'm sorry, that's a long spiel of a question because I'm thinking this through out loud, but like, is there some sense we're actually going to have like an orderly, decent and functioning economy that, that is not cutting off actual New Yorkers, uh, actual people of color who live here and just letting big corporations in and is not leading to criminalization or, or, or is this all remain to be seen? It just, I understand. It's stuff very now is confusing. Yeah, <laughs> it, is. Um, it is. I think I can sift through some of that. So like what we know right now, um, at least what my impression is right now from sources with knowledge of the situation, um, is that uh, the state is prioritizing, at least the state like regulatory board is prioritizing enforcing the laws against storefronts because they are in a sense, you know, presenting themselves as a legal dispensary. Some of them are saying that they're legal in some sense, maybe because they're gifting marijuana and, you know, along with the purchase of you know, something else or, you know, one dispensary chain says, because like we're a nonprofit and you guys are becoming members, somehow that's legal. And the state is saying, no, it's not legal. 
and your products are not regulated. And once we license dispensaries, you know, we don't want to have an unlicensed one next door and have people confused about which is which, right? Which is not really the same thing as like when you go to a dealer where, you know, you're pretty sure (laughs) that that's, you know, you know what a dealer is. It's not presenting itself as something else. Um, And I think the state is going to figure out how to find or try to find unlicensed dispensaries out of existence. Um, You know, I think the question is to what extent they're going to rely on local law enforcement to help with that, because in New York City so far, there haven't really been like NYPD raids of any of these places, which, you know, obviously for people who wanted legalization so that we stop criminalizing people, that's a good thing. Um, Although I did see they slapped like some kind of notice on one of the trucks, um, and I'm not really sure what happened with that. Uh, But like, you know, the NYPD has made like 35 arrests for marijuana sales and possession in the first three months of this year. 35, down from like tens of thousands a few years ago, right? So clearly it's not a priority right now for the NYPD to enforce marijuana laws, but the state does want to get rid of these dispensaries one way or another. Um, And there have been raids elsewhere, like in Western New York, there were raids on some of these gifting dispensaries. There were raids on dispensaries in New Jersey that were unlicensed. Um, And so I think as far as keeping the money in the legal industry and preventing consumers from getting too confused, that's like the current priority for regulators in New York. Um, But the question will be, once more dispensaries are open um, and we get a sense of how much of the people, how many of the people, you know, in the uh, currently like underground industry are moving into the legal industry, like, will there also be enforcement against those guys, you know, um, who don't have a storefront, like, will there be any effort to just like somehow forcefully get rid of the underground industry? I think that's probably misguided. I think it will just probably take time to get rid of the underground industry. Um, but I guess we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, so Caroline, before we let you go, I just have a quick question. Uh, you started this conversation talking about the growers. Can you tell us a little bit more about who those individuals are? And is this going to be a boon for downstate or upstate jobs? Because as you said, uh, the marijuana needs to be grown in New York State. So are we allocating land uh, in the five boroughs? Or is this all definitely going to be something upstate that then gets exported downstate? Well, one thing that's funny, actually, is that Mayor uh, Eric Adams wanted to have uh, weed grown on the roofs of NYCHA buildings, um, which uh, is not going to happen because NYCHA is, you know, federally run. And mm-hmm. so um, it was an interesting idea, but um, but I don't think that's going anywhere. Um, but there are definitely places, uh, I'm not sure about within the city, like I think it's a possibility, but obviously, you know, it's easier to grow outside of the city and there's definitely places uh, you know, within proximity to New York, where there's going to be um, weed growing operations. Um, for instance, uh, there's a place called Warwick, New York, um, where there used to be this mid orange correctional facility, like a medium security prison um, that shut down, uh, a, you know, about a decade ago. And they've basically had a bunch of cannabis businesses move in to its former campus, including um, one for Green Thumb Industries, which is like one of these big multi-state marijuana companies. Um, And they currently have a medical license in New York, but will definitely, you know, try to get a recreational license. And so they're starting a grow operation there. Um, And I think throughout the state, there will be grow operations. Um, I think initially a lot of the growers 
will be people who were already growing hemp um, since that was like previously legal and it's like basically the same crop. Um, so that will be like a really easy transition, I think, for a lot of hemp farmers. Mm-hmm. But I, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's not a lot of diversity, racial, ethnic, or gender diversity in hemp growing farmers. I so would definitely we- need to look into it more, but I think that there is sort of this priority of like, I know there's something about like distressed farmers um, being mm-hmm. included in like the social equity program. Like, I do think that there's, um, you know, in general, a priority to, uh, you know, have some form of equity, although there are certain parts of the state that are just like whiter. So, um, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And is there a particular state we should be looking to as as a model who's doing it right as far as inclusion and you know, sort of making sure that all different aspects are are taken care of, you know, sort of our local weed guy and, and woman, <laughs> and also, you know, people who, you know, need restitution from um, past practices, unequal practices of, of um, incarcerating folks because of marijuana. I think a lot of people are actually looking to us because I think that like, because there were so many laws that were passed before us and we saw, you know, sort of what people did right and what they did wrong. Um, New York had like a particularly ambitious uh, law in terms of trying to promote equity in terms of trying to bring in people with past convictions instead of keeping them out of the industry. Um, And I I think it'll be really interesting to see. And I'm also curious what will happen with these regulations because, you know, we're right near New Jersey where they've you know, had certain regulations that are pretty strict around things like edibles, where, you know, they only allow capsules and lozenges and things like that. In New York, I think, you know, and there are states that have like really high taxes. I think in New York, we'll have to really balance um, trying to get tax revenue out of it, trying to keep people safe and that sort of thing with also trying to make it like a fun, exciting industry where people want to buy legal marijuana products and want to, like you said, you know, abandon their, their dealer. I know in New Jersey right now, uh, they can't discriminate against employees who use marijuana. And at least for the time being, that that includes the uh, police. Mm. Governor Phil Murphy has said he'll look into that. Um, How's that going to work here in New York? Uh, Off-duty police, just to be clear. I'm not sure, actually. I need to, I mean, I assume that, like, they would be allowed to use marijuana, um, and I don't think you're allowed to, like, have, like, an employer test for it, um, but I will, I have to double check. I mean, I think especially also since Mayor Adams has decided he's fully on board with marijuana, um, you know, and he's, like, a former cop, um, I feel like he's not gonna, you know, be trying to test police officers for it. I just, I, I'm I'm not sold on like this equity program for people who have been disproportionately affected. I just feel like it's so hard to save a hundred thousand or hundred fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, right? And like that's for middle class people who don't have a record, who have like you know been in the workforce for a very long time. And then it's just not saying it's impossible, but I I'm really afraid that it's like people will save money, but like not really have like a cushion, so that as you said, if things take long or if any hiccup happens, you don't have a buffer and then you just end up losing the money. Yeah. I think it's like definitely more, there's more hurdles to jump through than just like getting the supply and starting to sell to people directly for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, 
like I, and I think that's what's tough also is like whether, I think it's also tough because it's unclear whether the state is going to have some kind of bias against people who are currently selling weed illegally. Right. Right. And And, and people they're aware of who who are out in the market right now. Yeah, exactly. Like it's interesting because clearly they don't want you you know, having a dispensary where you're like out in the open saying, Hey, I don't need a license. Like then you're probably not going to get a license, but if you, but they have, you know, talked about trying to quote unquote surface the legacy industry and like get people from the legacy industry licenses. Um, I guess the question is like, can you on your application say like, I am currently selling weed and I have a really successful business. I'm great at this. Probably not. Like probably your lawyer is going to tell you like, say like, I have extensive experience in the legacy market or something like that. Um, But I think when it comes to the finances, like you were talking about, I don't think people who currently make their living from marijuana have the ability to say like, I'm going to stop doing this right now on the chance that I will get a license later. Right. Right. Caroline Lewis of Gothamist and WMYC, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I hope we'll talk again as, uh, as things roll out. Ha ha. Ha Absolutely. <laughs> you got to squeeze in a weed pun. You're like really not allowed to report on marijuana without <laughs> at least one weed pun. F-A-Q. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics. Find us online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this week from all across New York City. A special thank you to our guests, Yoav Gonin of The City, Chris Sommerfeld of The Daily News, and Caroline Lewis of WNYC and Gothamist. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be cool, be kind, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, I mean, I think already people are seeing cannabis being sold out of like trucks and stores and some people are getting curious and wandering in and checking it out, even if they do sort of trust their, you know, their weed delivery guy more at this point. Um, Sorry, one sec. (coughs) Hopefully you can edit that. (laughs) (laughs) No, we'll put it at the end and it'll be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Between between the, the, the seed money... And the mid-episode coughing, everything just keeps coming back to weed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. I'm just choking up right now. <laughs>